Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of How Do We Fix It is a repeat, one of our best interviews from a vault that now includes several hundred conversations. Richard, we've talked a lot about toxic polarization on this show. So in this episode, we're going to look at the science, how we got here, and why we're all affected by the disease of bitter conflict and our culture of contempt. The Way Out, Overcoming Toxic Polarization with Peter Coleman. When you're watching the news and some event happens, if it's an important thing, my recommendation is that you find two or three people who have opposing political views from you, who you believe are well-intentioned, decent people, and well-informed, and find them. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Today, we're lucky to hear from one of the world's leading experts on violence, peace building, and conflict resolution. Peter Coleman has a resume that's really about a yard long. But here are just a couple of highlights. He's a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University and director of the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. Peter is also deeply concerned about the current state of American politics and society. His new book is The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Richard, you did this interview with Peter while I was away. Somehow you got through it on your own. Uh, and it's, it, this, the interview certainly clips along a lot more promptly without uh, my uh, me weighing in on every other question. But I will have a few thoughts on what he says later in the show, in our conversation. Peter Coleman, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you very much for having me. First, let's talk about toxic polarization. How does toxic polarization differ from polarization? Good question. So polarization, as you know, is really sort of, the, you know, drifting apart of different positions or ideas or ideologies from one another and is in most political systems a good and necessary thing, particularly if you have a two-party system like we do in America. You know, you need to have passionate, smart, well-intentioned, well-informed people that oppose each other in order to um, push us forward as a nation, as a society, and think in new ways. But toxic polarization is a different phenomenon altogether. Part of that is that 
in, in, in our current situation, we are in the midst of a 50 to 60 year long trajectory of increasing enmity for the other side, vilification for the other side. We're physically moving away from each other. We misperceive how extreme the other side is. We've fallen into a, a fairly chronic state. I compare toxic polarization to addiction in that it is a biopsychosocial structural problem. Over time, it gets within us. So it affects our brains. It affects our brain structures, our neurological structures. Uh, outrage and uh, the desire for retaliation, the, the kind of pleasure that comes with the anticipation of retaliation triggers the same parts of our brains that heroin addiction triggers. We do get addicted to outrage, and then we live in the system that is a, a you know an outrage industrial complex where the major social media platforms understand our addiction to negativity and outrage. A lot of the cable and even network news recognize that that's uh, a, the business model for attracting and keeping our attention. All of those factors contributing to this 60-year pattern that culminates in things like January 6th, uh, which I think is just the beginning harbinger of things to come. It seems like one of the things you're saying is that outrage can be fun. You know, there is a, a hit that, that one gets from being, uh, you know, outraged by something ridiculous that somebody has said or tweeted, um, especially if you feel like you can retaliate in some way and there is something satisfying that we get from that, which is a hit of adrenaline, but ultimately it's toxic. So social media, technology platforms, a more partisan news media are all accelerants that encourage us to be polarized. What about the behavior of our political leaders? You know, there are different types of political leaders, but since negative campaigning, negative attack ads, you know, attacks on one's opponents have become popularized, they're effective. They do win. So there is a kind of rational element to that you really want to characterize your opponent as being disingenuous, corrupt, you know, ineffective, incompetent, you know, whatever you can throw at them. Um, it, those things work. So there is a rationality to it in times of election the election periods become longer and longer, so it becomes more the normal status quo to simply vilify members of the other team or the other party. There was a time when political campaigning was a phase, and then you would go to governing. Now political campaigning is 24-7, and so it, that is also part of this ethos of hate. I think some people would be surprised to hear you say that the road we are now on, toxic polarization, began 60 years ago. Yeah. Can you explain? Yes. Scholars measure different pieces of polarization. They measure everything from, you know, voting patterns in Congress and whether there's any bipartisanship and uh, passage of bills or just obstructionism. And that as a pattern has increased over several decades but also just how we feel about the other side. The Pew Research Group often asks the degree of warmth you feel for the other side and your side, or the degree to which you feel cold about them, the degree you distrust organization, you know, the you know government and the other uh, parties. 
Um, and those indicators have all been on the rise. So by all of those measures, you see decades of increase in polarization. That begins in the 70s. It, it again t- hits another level in the 90s with changes in Washington in terms of the you know, Republican Revolution and Newt Gingrich's sort of approach to governing. Um, but then again, it, you know, with the onset of social media, the onset of the entertainmentization and politicization of media, all of these factors are tipping points that move us to another level of, of intensity and escalation. Um, and that's why we see this is happening for decades. Part of what you're saying is that there have always been Republicans and Democrats, but in the past, they were not tribes. We didn't think of ourselves, our identity, as Republican or Democrat. It was just part of our overall view of ourselves. Now uh, that's taken on a different aspect. Yeah, it's definitely more a, a more central component of our identities. Um, but yes, the identification with these either individuals like Trump or parties and party ide- ideology has become stronger and stronger. Um, and the extreme groups are the most active and therefore pull us in these more extreme directions. Racism is a very important part of our polarization. Have we made progress in the nearly year and a half since the murder of George Floyd, which sparked so many protests? Well, you know, I guess I would have to say yes and no. I think that there have been pockets of progress. And because of the Black Lives Matter movement and the attention that particularly violent incidents, sometimes associated or not associated with it, that were covered by the news, you see that being a lightning rod for even more polarization. So in some ways you see both, right? You see in many parts of the country, particularly in business and industry, which I think has been interesting, and higher education as an example, a concerted effort to say, all right, this is a tipping point. This is a moment of crisis. We really need to think carefully and systemically about how do we really affect change um, to grow a different kind of culture and community here. That's good news. And the issue in some sectors has become so heated and so polarized, but it makes sense. We're in a country with a 400-year legacy of white supremacy that we're still chipping away at at the margins. There is a ton of frustration and grievance of that. And you have a large white lower to middle class population that feels left behind, disenfranchised, you know, that other people are skipping the line. So, you know, we are we have a sort of perfect climate for those kinds of, you know, tensions to erupt and persist. You've made a very strong case for polarization being a big part of what's wrong with our politics. But how damaging is toxic polarization? It does lead to a societal climate and culture where physically we are sorting. We're physically moving away from each other, even within cities into particular neighborhoods, so that we don't have to have contact with them. And those are the conditions where you see high spikes in violence. There's studies in India of Hindus and Muslims. And when you have large groups of different ethnic populations or political populations that live near each other, but have no very little contact with each other, when there is a dispute between them, it's much more likely to escalate into violence. 
because you don't have the kind of context that mitigate that. This is pretty grim stuff. <laughs> no, but, no, no. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, but we know we're polarized. Is that fact that we know there's a problem, a, potentially a sign of hope? Yeah, I think so. People know that they're miserable. They know that they're frustrated. They know they don't trust the government. Um, I do think that level of what we call exhaustion of the, the majority middle is a promising condition because those are the conditions where you see societies pivot. When enough of the moderate forces of a nation say enough of this craziness, we don't want to do this anymore, we really want to take a different tact. So it does create ripe conditions for us to shift as a society. What we need is some clear sense of how to do that. And I assume that's why I'm on How Do We Fix It? That is indeed why you're on our podcast. And uh, as you mentioned, this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. Jim Meggs is away this week. We're speaking with Peter Coleman, uh, the author of the new book, The Way Out and Solutions, coming next. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There are many groups now working in the bridging space, working to reduce uh, the differences between us, working to improve political civility, for instance. But are at least some of them going down the wrong path? Are there methods that don't work as well as methods that do? Yeah, I think so. You're absolutely right. The good news is that there are thousands of what we call bridge building groups and organizations across the country. There's a fantastic website called the Bridging Divides Initiative that comes out of Princeton that has a map of the U.S. and you can click on it and it will show you who in your community is doing this kind of work. So there's community-based groups that have sprung up that are bringing red and blue Americans together. And there's a lot of work happening in sectors, in government, in Congress, in the media, in journalism, you know, uh, in education. And a lot of those are highly effective, are well informed by the science. Um, but there are, unfortunately, an approach to this that I think is problematic and misinformed. When you have polarization, you have a community that's divided that are not in contact with each other very much, then it's very useful to just say, let's just bring people together, have them have a chance to meet each other, humanize each other, realize that they both have kids and they both like music. And that can sort of start to shift their stereotypes of one another. 
through simply bringing people together across group divides. But in a state of toxic polarization, when, when you have that kind of conflict, then just simply encouraging people to get together, even sometimes when it's facilitated, is insufficient. Because these kinds of conflicts, these kinds of deep disputes within societies are not easy to solve. There are not quick fixes for them. You can't just bring people together for a half hour for a cup of coffee and say, good luck, because they often can backfire because of the passions and outrage and grievances that you know undergird them. So when these issues, when these differences tap into our identities, our emotions, our passions, our grievances, and our sense of loyalty to our tribes, then just bringing people together is not only ineffective, it's unethical. Let's talk more about what works. You've spent many years uh, studying conflict. Um, and what is encouraging about your research and your book is that there are methods that do help reduce polarization. But let's start first with, with society. Are there specific examples? Well, there are many examples. I think when we're facing a challenge as big as this, that is as you know, sort of society-wide or cultural as this, it's oftentimes hard to do by ourselves. So part of it is finding those people that already exist, but it might be an individual that you know of, um, and asking for their support. I find I need support. I mean, I've studied this for my entire life, but when I get really triggered, it's very difficult for me to have the kind of frame of mind to engage constructively. So sometimes I'll say to a friend of mine, can you step in here and help us think through this? Because I'm stuck. <laughs> you know? So that's one thing I would highly recommend is at the societal level, if you feel like you're trying to make progress and reach out across the other side and understand them, and it just keeps backfiring and you feel like you're moving in the other direction, then seek out groups that know how to facilitate these and know the conditions under which that facilitation helps, which usually means time. It does sometimes take enough time for us to build up enough rapport and trust and respect in one another and the group that we're sitting with in order to start to understand the other, understand our own positions on this, uh, and move through this in a more constructive direction. So that's just one recommendation, which is, you know, it's, it's, it, we say, find what works. Find people, groups, organizations in your community that are already doing this work effectively, and check them out. So often, when we get together and, and talk about politics or anything else that's contentious, we feel we have to have a debate when if we actually want to learn, we ought to have a discussion. Tell us more. Well, we're highly socialized for debate and, you know, and it's a thrill. It's a game. Debate is a game. You're trying to win the game. You're trying to win the argument. You know, you listen to the other side, you find flaws in their logic, and then you weaponize those flaws and take them, you know, take them to the mat, right? Sometimes that happens on how do we fix it. Jim is more conservative than I am, and uh -huh. and we debate. And in I I think in our best moments we're discussing. <laughs> and debate is not necessarily a bad thing, you know. It's it's everywhere in our society, and we assume when a political issue comes up that the way to talk about it is to debate it. There's value in that under certain conditions. 
when you have conditions where there are kind of, you know, so fair rules and respect and enough trust and rapport, then debates can be useful ways to kind of explore the nuance of your thinking and my thinking. And is there a way to even synthesize them? It can be a useful thing, but it's rarely a place that we learn a lot, particularly when there's a lot of passion involved. And dialogue is fundamentally the opposite. Dialogue is a process that's usually a facilitated process because it does not come naturally to most Americans. And it is a process where we listen. Well, first of all, we hear, right? We have to hear one another. We hear, so I would hear your story. I would hear Jim's story. And it's usually not a space of interrogation. So I wouldn't say, but what about, you said you belong to this group. How come you're thinking, you know, no. In dialogue, typically people share their stories. They listen to one another. Oftentimes in the telling of my own story about some issue of the importance of some issue to me or a grievance that I have, I discover things about myself that I wasn't really even aware of. So there is a discovery process that can happen when you're not in this game of debate, but when you're trying to discover and learn about your, yourself, about the other people in the room, and about these complicated issues that we're talking about. Leave us with a couple of more things we can do to counter toxic polarization. Happy to, yeah. So one that I, want, I really wanna stress is, um, I have a, a chapter in the book that, that I think is titled Move. Uh, and it really is based on kind of current neuroscience. And it in some ways is provocative in my field because, so I'm trained as a mediator, I'm a facilitator, you know, peace builder. And what we tend to do when we work with, you know, divided parties or communities is we ask, we invite them to sit down at a table and follow some rules and have a conversation with each other. That's our bread and butter. That's the main thing that we do most of the time. But what I'm arguing is that with this kind of conflict, where the differences have become really embodied in our physiology, in our neurological structures, then we may need something else to get past that. And one of the things that research on neuroscience is telling us is that sometimes it's really useful to move, to get what, up. What, go for a walk or? <laughs> to absolutely. And part of what happens when people get up and move together is that there is a kind of a physiological synchronization that happens between your mirror neurons and my mirror neurons. And we start to feel physically more connected, somehow more in sync. So move is one very practical suggestion. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. One more. Okay. Well, the, the, the final one that I would re recommend, which is the, really a center to our research, is to, we say, complicate your life. So we tend to start to oversimplify what are immensely complex feelings, experiences, uh, and ideas and policies. And what is helpful to ebb the flow of that is to intentionally find ways to complicate your life. So here's one example. When you're watching the news and some event happens, if it's an important thing, my recommendation is that you find two or three people who have opposing political views from you, who you believe are well-intentioned, decent people, and well-informed, and find them. So I have made it a practice in my life when particularly news events hit 
that there are a handful of people that I intentionally seek out because I want to know how are they seeing this? What are they thinking about this? And that forces me to check my own comfort and assumption and tendency to get sucked into my team's view on this and to say, well, yeah, my team has a valid view, but there may be some other points that I wasn't really thinking about and that they're not talking about. Peter Coleman, thanks very much. Oh, Richard, thank you very much. It was a pleasure, always a pleasure to speak with you, and I look forward to doing it again. Love that. Peter Coleman, his new book is The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Coming next, our recommendation. Jim, this week, it's it's your choice. Yes. Richard, you might remember a few months ago, I recommended a podcast about the history of country music called Cocaine and Rhinestones. Well, I've discovered an even more in-depth podcast with a broader subject matter. It's called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. It's making kind of a splash, and it is a perfect example of what makes podcasts so great. The British writer Andrew Hickey goes through literally 500 songs from the earliest days of rock and roll music and gives really in-depth descriptions of how a song came to be recorded by a certain artist, their record company, the studio. It's definitely a deep dive for true music nerds. Uh, I listened the other day to the episode on the Animals 1964 hit, uh, House of the Rising Sun. That's a great choice because that song has a, has a good backstory. Absolutely. So he goes all the way back to, you know, the 17th century, the, the English folk songs that might have been the foundation of it. Then how Dave Van Ronk, the, you know, Greenwich Village folk singer adapted it. And then how Bob Dylan kind of ripped off his adaptation and changed it slightly. And then how the, you know, the animals took Dylan's version and on and on. All these great little fascinating details that I didn't know about. So, Jim, I, I've forgotten the name of the, of the podcast. A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. He's up to, I think, uh, episode about 134 now. So this will be something that's going to run for quite some time to come. Thanks. I'll take a listen. Now, our conversation. A lot of people talk about toxic polarization, what it's doing to us, but Peter has looked at the science and the history of it. Yes, and he really digs into something I think is important, which is to move beyond the easy moralizing view. Like, oh, if just those other people on the other side could be nicer and more open-minded, we could get past this. I think what was really valuable in a lot of his work is showing how hard it is. I, I loved he called it a biopsychosocial structural problem. And he talks about the outrage industrial complex businesses that that basically make money on making us more outraged, more polarized. One of the many disturbing things Peter Coleman said is that the middle is weak. The extremes are the most active. But when the middle is active right now, 
Its leaders often face vilification in the media and from party activists on both sides. I'm thinking of the latest examples being Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who are moderate Democrats, who are trying to strike a, a middle ground on the infrastructure bill. And boy, are they getting hammered for it. Uh, people are chasing Kirsten Sinema into the you know restrooms with cameras and haranguing her. And really, if you go on Twitter... People are acting like they are the worst people in the world with no recognition whatsoever that that they're representing their states. I mean, Joe Manchin represents a state that that Trump won by something like 30 or 40 points. You know, if he was as progressive as the progressives, he wouldn't be there and they wouldn't have a majority. We wouldn't be having this discussion at all. And yet it's the center that gets vilified. That's crazy to me. During the interview, Peter Coleman did mention a constructive effort, which is the Bridging Divides Initiative. It's a nonpartisan research group that that tracks political violence in the U.S. and also supports efforts to grow and build local community resilience and reconciliation. We've got a link to that on our website. And he made one suggestion that I just think is so great and so basic, which is MOVE. This idea that if we do active things together, just the process of doing things together helps break down divides. You know, I think of of my old friend Harry Stein, a writer some of you may know, living in a very liberal town where you and I used to live, Richard. He was devoted to his softball team. And I, I guarantee you he was probably the only conservative on that team. But he was great friends with all the people on that team. Doing things like that, softball leagues, things where people from different backgrounds get together and do something that's not about politics. It builds a type of relationship that you wouldn't necessarily build just getting together and discussing big issues. So go take a hike, relax, don't try to solve every problem every day, and maybe the world will look a little better. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. <laughs> and I'm Jim Eggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And thanks for joining us once again. If you want to learn more about uh, the company that produces this show and others, it's DaviesContent.com. Uh, check us out on the web. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.